all these uh, worship song notes up here. I wonder if I was supposed to sing. <laughs> That'd be all right. Scare everybody this morning. You know, some weeks ago, when I uh, was getting up to speak, I really wasn't uh, well that Sunday. I was sick, and my voice was quite hoarse. And Dave Troutman placed a glass of water here, and my response was less than gracious. I said, uh, "That won't help, and it's in my way." And Dave took it down. And you know, I've apologized today for that. And he graciously said, "Well." I know you weren't feeling good, but since I did that publicly, I think I publicly need to acknowledge repentance for inappropriate tone of voice, Dave, and you're a caring man, and that was an example of that. So I need to acknowledge that flaw uh, in me. <laughs> you know, we all have character problems, and uh, I have few, but uh, <laughs> that demonstrated one. It's also interesting, you know, look around all the empty seats we have today. Now, this is a time of year that people travel. In the Old Testament, we find our Lord time and again, uh, shall we say, filtering out the people and having just a few left, and these he called the remnant. Now, if you go to a, uh, a sewing center, and they have bolts of cloth, and they have some leftovers, and those are called remnants. And the remnants, of course, aren't worth much. But uh, to God, the remnant was the great treasure. This morning, we are the remnant. Praise His name. <laughs> this past week, I was chatting with one of the men in the church. Mentioned I'd been praying about what word God would have me bring today, and in some ambiguous way, I felt I was being led to the Old Testament. The brother said, well, you know, I've read through the Old Testament many times. Uh, several times, he said. I don't recall he said many, but several times anyway. And sometimes I hit a passage and I ask, well, I wonder why that's there. And then he expressed his difficulty in really finding a lot of meaning in much of the Old Testament. And the more we talked, the more I became convinced indeed that I was sensing the leading of God to speak something from the Old Testament. The underlying truths of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same. Some people say, I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but it's the same God. The underlying truths of the New Testament are the underlying truths of the Old Testament. And when someone spends all of their time studying the New Testament without developing equal knowledge of the Old Testament, it's as if a person decided to build a two-story house and decided to start on the second story first because they have not gained the foundation that would sustain the second floor. The Old Testament prevents those foundational things that really are the underpinnings of the new. There's an old saying, the Old Testament is the new concealed, and the New Testament is the old revealed. And indeed, that's true. One of the problems that contemporary readers of the Old Testament often face is the failure to be aware of the underlying 
message or messages of the Old Testament. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. What is the underlying message or messages of the Old Testament? And how do they relate to us? First, let me make some preliminary comments. The Old Testament is important to us if for no other reason than Jesus Christ and the apostles declared it to be the divinely inspired Word of God. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned, and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And the Scripture that Paul so described was the Old Testament, because the New Testament was just in the process of, of being written. Twice in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 15, Paul wrote of the abiding importance of the Old Testament to us. In verse 4 of chapter 15, he said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. It's interesting, I, I went through the New Testament, scanned it, and here's an interesting thing. Sixty times in the New Testament, we find the Old Testament referred to with the expression, it is written. And time and again, as you read the encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees, he argued on this basis, it is written. When Paul and his missionary companions came to a city, the first thing they tried to do was find a synagogue where there were Jews. And they preached the gospel to them, and the way they did it was by reasoning with them from the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 17, Luke commends the Bereans because when Paul preached, they didn't just take that word as being true, but it says they searched the Scriptures, they searched the Old Testament to see if what Paul was preaching was the truth. So we could go on and on, but from these and a host of other examples we could cite showing that Jesus Christ Himself as well as the preachers, the apostles of the New Testament, considered the Old Testament to be God's Word, divinely inspired. So, if for no other reason, that's the reason why the Old Testament is important to us. Now, there are a lot of truths in the Old Testament, but the underlying truth, which is the foundation of everything else, is this. God is God. The Bible begins in Genesis 1.1, Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. The very first words, in the beginning, God. And the last portion of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, is an indictment against people who did not view God as God, but in a cavalier way, 
they treated him and his commandments. This past week I was reading from Leviticus chapters 18 and 19 in which the Lord is, which Jehovah God is dictating to Moses various things concerning the Levitical laws. Listen how this section begins. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Now, I'm sure you know that every time you see in an English version, the Lord, in capital letters, you know that is the way they're rendering the word that we would call Jehovah or Yahweh. We don't really know how to pronounce it because that personal name of God, the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew consonants, the Jews quit pronouncing because the name of God was so sacred. And so later when people said, how do we pronounce this? They they took the vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, and added those vowels to the Tetragrammaton. And in Germany first, they began to say Yahweh, but since in German J is a Y, when we took it into English, we began to pronounce it as Jehovah. But nobody really knows how to pronounce that personal name of God. But every time in the Bible you see the Lord in capital letters, that means that is an English attempt to render in some way that personal name of God. So Jehovah spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Jehovah your God. And as you read through that section, it is interesting that 21 times in those new chapters, those two chapters, every time God gave a law and elaborated upon it, He concluded it by saying, I am Jehovah, your God, emphasizing that He is indeed the God. In Romans chapter 1, and Bill preached from this section some weeks ago. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. uh, God, uh, Paul declared the fact that the wrath of God is displayed against the human race. Jesus Christ went to the cross to turn away that wrath. But as Paul describes why God's wrath is expressed toward humanity, he wrote this, even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 6, we read the Hebrew says that God repented, He had made man. The word repent is naham, which means God was sighing and grieving over the fact He had made man because Every intent of man's thought was toward evil. If I understand the words of of Genesis 6, and you have to kind of interpret exactly what this means. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and each one took wives of them. We know angels don't marry or are given in marriage, so it can't be angels, as the uh, living Bible says. It appears, the only thing I can make of that is, that the descendants of Seth, which were a very righteous family, began to look upon the descendants of Cain, which were not a righteous family, 
and the two groups began to intermarry until time went by that the righteousness fled. Now as these two groups married, they, they had offspring, which are called Nephilim, which means great men or mighty men, not giants as some would, would say, but mighty men. They may have been big, but they were very competent, they were very strong, they were very self-sufficient. And every impulse that was in them, they gave full play to that. And so God grieved over the fact that he had made man. And he brought the flood. Because humanity was not recognizing God as God. That is the underlying truth of the Old Testament and really the underlying truth of the New Testament, that God is God. Bill and Jim have both spoken of kindness and mercy and grace, but it is this God, the only one who really has the authority to extend that grace and that kindness and that mercy. Well, what are the ramifications of this underlying truth? Now, there are many. But this morning I want to address three because I think these three ramifications need to be heard in our age and in our culture. Now, some say, well, that's what the younger generation needs to hear. No, not just the younger generation. We're in a culture that needs to be reminded of these truths. I, uh, Tuesday, I think it was. No, it was Friday. I met with a teacher who teaches school in California. And she was talking about the problems that she had in the classroom and children's behavior. And then she said, but it's not just the children, it's their parents. And indeed, that's true. What are these three? First, God is the creator and the owner of the universe. The more I learn about the creation, the more, frankly, I am awed by our Creator God. As a, as a child, I became interested in astronomy. Uh, first inklings of that as a child, I would lie down in the backyard at night in the summer and look up at all the stars, and I'd have my flashlight, and I'd wonder if they could see it. Of course, they couldn't. <laughs> but then as I began to grow older and gain more knowledge of what it was really all about, one of the most fulfilling summers I ever had, I spent one summer mapping the constellations for three months, how they moved about in the sky. And it's something marvelous to do and watch how, how these things shift and at what time this planet's going to come, what hour will we see this one, how does this one move about. But since my teen years, my, the knowledge we have of astronomy has exploded and when we read of the vastness, not just solar systems and not just galaxies, but the entire universe. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's just ineffable to do. You can't find language, can you, to think about this greatness. But not only in the macrocosms, but in the microcosms also. I, I think doctors have a real edge on us because they understand the complex workings of the human body. 
boy, don't you see there the creative action of God. Most of you know my dear wife for many, many years throughout most of her life battled chronic ulcerative colitis. And so I became interested in how the body handles food from mouth to anus. What happens? Amazing what happens. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. <laughs> As a food, you swallow it, you chew it up, the digestive already begins. And once you swallow it, you can't do much about it. There's, the muscles act like waves and begin to move food along. It goes into the stomach and fluids encounter it, the, 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 the liver, the pancreas, the gallbladder, all of these things involved. Here's an interesting thing. The mucus in the digestive tract produces a hormone. And that hormone then is taken by the blood circulatory system to the heart. And then the heart, it passes out through the arteries and returns back to the digestive tract and there controls the way the muscles work that cause the food to move along. They're extrinsic and intrinsic nerves. It's, it's just astounding. <laughs> I, I would urge you sometime to take the time to do this. It's amazing to see how the human digestive tract works. No evolutionist can explain that. Someone says, give me a million years. Okay, take two. How about ten? <laughs> I do not need some statistician to tell me, here are the odds that this might happen. So remote it could. I don't need a statistician. Any thinking person can look at this and say behind it there must have been, a, but not only a designer, but a designer who had this exquisite ability to make all of this as well as design how it works. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. He is the owner. It is his. And he's free to do with it according to his purposes. And that's the first ramification that I think we need to have constantly before us as we think about the truth, God is God. The second, and this really needs to be heard in this generation, I believe, and that is this, that all and reverential fear are the appropriate response to the truth that God is God. Now, you know, language changes. Some years ago I was writing a paper that related to the Greek word kafale, head. It's interesting over the 300 years how that word began to change meanings. That's what language does. But sometimes I regret it. <laughs> The word awe, today everything is awesome, whether it's a foot race or this or that or the other, uh, it's everything is awesome. Oh, I wish we still had that word exclusively to mean what it really means, originally meant, stunned into silence. Stunned into silence. 
reverential awe, reverential fear of God, our appropriate response to the truth that God is God. Now, a lot of people don't like that today. Let me read some scriptures for you. Here's some from the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. This is after the writer has just explored all things about life and what's fulfilling and what the purpose of it and the emptiness of it. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Twice in Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, you say that's an Old Testament idea. Well, here's some in the New Testament. The book of Acts, chapter 9, we read about Paul's coming to Jerusalem after his conversion experience and spending several years in Damascus, about three years in that area. He then came to Jerusalem, and when he got to Jerusalem, Paul, being just by nature a debater, began to argue and debate with the Jewish people. He took up exactly where Stephen had left off and gotten killed for it three years earlier, actually three and a half years earlier. He just causing all kinds of problems, and so finally the church sent him back to Tarsus. And immediately after that, here's what Luke wrote. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. <laughs> sent Paul home. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. A beautiful, beautiful description of a wonderful one of the few times the church in the New Testament era had peace, but they went on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 5, 21. Be subject to one another, in the fear of Christ. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. In the book of Revelation 14.7, he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. 19.5, And a voice came to the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. You see, this is an abiding condition for all who understand that God is God. In Romans chapter 3, even as he did in chapter 1, Paul describes the symptoms of a diseased society. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And after describing all these symptoms of the disease, then Paul diagnoses the disease 
And he says, quoting Psalm 36, 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why we see the horrible condition in the culture that he described of his day. Now sometimes people will argue that reverential awe of God is inappropriate because we read in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. To use that as an argument against reverential awe and reverential fear of God is to ignore the context of this verse. John is stating that the believer need have no fear of punishment in the day of judgment. We can have confidence in the day of judgment. That's what the verse right before says. But, but the, this is a part of an argument that begins in verse 7 and goes all the way to, to 21. And the underlying exhortation of this is that we should love one another because God loved us. And because God loved us, therefore, we should love one another. He loved us and sent Jesus to the cross, this passage says. Since He loved us so much, we should love one another. We have the Holy Spirit within us, it says, that produces this love. If we manifest the Holy Spirit through the love that we have for one another, we have the same character in the world that Jesus has in heaven. We are in the world, so He is in heaven. The idea being that if people want to see Jesus, let them look at us because we are people who manifest love. And because all of this is true, we have confidence in the day of judgment. We do not fear standing before God in that day. But there's nothing in this passage that argues against reverential fear and awe of God. A third ramification of the truth is that God expects precise obedience to his commands. Here are some examples. The construction of the tabernacle and the temple. Here's what God said to Moses. According to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it, see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown you in the mountain. Exodus 25, 9 and 40. Exodus 26, 30, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain. And we find that repeated more than once as God kept emphasizing that. And when it was time to build the temple that was emphasized to Solomon exactly according to the plan. Now in the book of Hebrews, which is showing how the Old Testament relates to the New Covenant, Hebrews 8, 5, speaking of these tabernacle in the temple, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. God was saying, do it exactly the way I said do it. Another example is Moses and Gershom. Now you remember 
when Moses fled Egypt and lived on the backside of the mountain and was as a shepherd, he, he had this encounter with God in the burning bush. And he was commissioned to go back to Egypt and there be God's agent to lead the people out of bondage to the promised land. Moses, while living there, had taken a wife, Zipporah. And so in obedience to God, Moses and Zipporah began their journey back to Egypt. Moses reluctantly, but in obedience he began the journey. The first night something happened. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way Jehovah met him and sought to put him to death. Think of that. He told Moses, go. Moses was going. But on the first night, they stopped in a lodging place, and Jehovah sought to kill Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, Jehovah, let him alone. At the time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. God had ordered that every male Hebrew be circumcised at eight days of age. Moses had not circumcised his son. As we listen to the language of Zipporah, it appears that she didn't approve of circumcision. You wonder if Moses had given in to what his wife had said. We don't know. But because Moses had not explicitly obeyed God's command, God sought to kill him. And God's wrath was turned away when the son was circumcised. Another example is the incident of Meribah. Now, Moses and Aaron were leading the people through the wilderness they were leading to the promised land all the way along. They had to deal with a bunch of grumblers, people that didn't like the food. God was giving manna, so, okay, I'll give you some quails. You can have those at sunset. Gripe, 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 gripe. One time they were griping. They don't have any water. Moses cried out to God. and Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tent of the meeting, fell on their faces. The glory of Jehovah appeared to them, and Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. You and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drank. They got the folks together. <laughs> Moses and Aaron stood in front of them, and here's what happened. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rock, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregations and their beasts drank. But Jehovah said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Think of that. Leading this rebellious crowd for 40 years and at the end of the journey, not allowed to go into the promised land because 
of the incident at Meribah. God said, gather the people together and speak to the rock. Moses and Aaron gathered the people together and he struck the rock twice, had the attitude that was not appropriate. The sin evidently was twofold in his frustration. He kind of gave the impression he had Aaron were bringing forth the water, but he also struck the rock when God said, speak to it. He did not explicitly obey the command of God and forfeited his right to go into the promised land. Another striking example is that of Nadab and Abihu. Now these were two of Aaron's sons. The day came when the tabernacle was uh, being finished. Everything was uh, getting ready to have the sacerdotal services as God had planned. There so before the elders of Israel, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were able to stand at the foot of this great mountain and have an experience of the glory and awareness of God. And then they came back and Aaron and his sons were consecrated. And after the first offering uh, presented Jehovah, Aaron and, and uh, Moses blessed the people. And then Aaron came down from the altar and Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle for a brief time before God. They came out and again blessed the people and God responded and the, the glory of Jehovah fell upon people. There was fire coming down from Jehovah that, that burned up the offerings that were on the altar. Heaven responded. Folks were ecstatic. <laughs> they got very excited. Nadab and Abihu did too. They grabbed their fire pans and immediately began to offer incense to God and fire came from heaven and killed them because they had offered strange fire. What did that mean? Well, one thing, the incense was only to be offered in the evening and so on when the offerings were being given. So they were doing it out of order. But the fact they had strange fire indicates they probably had the wrong formula. <laughs> they were not burning the incense that God had ordered. And because they, in their enthusiasm, disobeyed God's explicit commands, they were stricken dead. Now, Aaron was troubled. Then Moses said to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what Jehovah spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Another example well known to all of us, I'm sure, is the incident with Uzzah. When the Israelites were in battle with the Philistines, they were losing and they sent word back, go get the ark and we'll let it go into battle in front of us. In other words, go get God. And they went back and got the ark and put it in front of the Hebrew army and they marched against the Philistines and the Jews lost and the Philistines captured the ark. God was saying, I'll not be used as a good luck charm. You can't use me as a rabbit foot or a horseshoe. 
the Philistines had all kinds of trouble with his ark. And finally the time came when David had built a special tent for it and he wanted to bring the ark back. Now the ark had been built with rings and poles covered with gold had been built to put through those rings. The golden poles really essentially were a part of the ark. And God said, when you move the ark, let four porters carry it, one on each end of a pole. When David went to get the ark, they didn't do it that way, probably lifted it that way, but put it on an ox cart and started hauling it back to Jerusalem. God had said no man should ever touch the ark. And as they crossed the stream, the cart began to wobble. It looked like the ark might fall off. Uzzah reached forth to steady it and was stricken dead because God had decreed no one should touch the ark. Explicit obedience. We could mention the prophet who believed a lie in 1 Kings 13. On and on we could go. But an underlying message of the Old Testament is this. When God gives a command, he expects no deviation. He expects precise obedience and no substitute for what he has ordered. Now there's another underlying truth. And this one is important because the things that we have said so far today are kind of hard, aren't they? You might think, boy, that God's a meanie. <laughs> but there's another underlying truth in New Testament, that's it, of the Old Testament, that's it. God cares for us. A beautiful thought. This great God cares for us. He knows us. You know, we have the New Testament, the statement that I believe Joel read this morning, the hairs of our head are numbered and so on. But in the Old Testament we have a statement, you know, he knows my rising up and my sitting down. He knows my thoughts before I th thinking. And David said such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In the Old Testament we have the clear statement as clear as we have in the New that God knows each of us intimately. In the law of Moses, God expressed his heart for the disenfranchised and the poor and the widow. Listen, listen to this one from uh, the writing in the, in the law. You shall not afflict, afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry and my anger will be kindled. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. Wow, think of that. If you afflict a widow or you afflict an orphan, God's going to get you. That's what the law says. It's like James said, true and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this. Visit the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unspotted to the world. God even gets involved in the loan business in the Old Testament. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, 
You are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. I like that one, don't we? <laughs> God even cares about struggling poor people who need help and don't take advantage of them by charging them interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? It shall come about that when he cries out to me, I'll hear him, for I'm gracious. God said, okay, you lend a man some money, and you take his cloak as surety. You can have it sunrise or sunset, but sunset, give it back to him, and the next morning, get it again. Don't you see the compassion of God in that? We have a wonderful, compassionate God. God who is God. The Lord is good. Jehovah is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endureth to all generations. Let us never forget... Let us never lose the awareness that God is God. He is the creator and owner of everything that exists. When we realize that and who we are, how can we respond in any way other than awe and then gratitude for his great mercy? May our God be praised.